The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Morning, church. How are we doing today? Grab your Bibles if you would. Turn to Luke chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, stick a hand up nice and high. We will make sure that you get one so you can follow along with us and know that I'm not lying at you. Um, got a book I want to give away this morning. Some of you guys know Matt Chandler is the president of the Acts 29 Network, of which our church is a part of, and he's written a phenomenal, phenomenal book. Don't you love these little, like, like, that's like you can handle a book that size, you know what I mean? Uh, maybe I just have seminary hangover, but I, I'm really enjoying the little bitty books right now. So um, anyway, this book is called Take Heart. Christian courage in an age of unbelief. And in a, in a place where a lot of times we as Christians can see things that maybe are going against Christianity or directions in the culture or whatever, it can be so tempting for us to kind of go the route of, oh man, everything's getting terrible and all this. But, but Chandler pushes back on that as like, man, this is a great time to be a Christian. This is the kind of times when the church has thrived and it's just a really good practical book. So um, after service, let me preach first. But after service, because you guys like rush up here and stuff, um, if you get one, what are your rules? You have to what? You have to read it. It is a book. And uh, then you have to do what with it after? Pass it along. Right on. Uh, Church at the fair was fun. (laughs) Right? Wow. That was interesting. But it, it, was, it still was fun. I, I, first of all, all of you that volunteered and, and everybody that, and the worship team that put in weeks of practice and all that kind of stuff, man, just still want to thank all of you guys. It, it was still great to be able to have a lot of fellowship together with the other churches. And, and I can tell you this, though, um, the directors of the fair, they felt terrible that the service was having to get canceled. And so I was with them. Um, as they were kind of making the decisions and talking with the meteorologist and all this kind of stuff. And this one gal there, she was like literally tears in her eyes as they were pulling the plug on the service and all that stuff. And, and I got a message from her later in the week that said, I just want to let you guys know that I've never seen such awesome examples of graciousness. Um, people could have been so upset that things were canceled, but they were just blown away by how kind everyone was to him, even in the midst of difficult situations. And, and now looking at the rest of the valley on fire, it would have been super selfish of us to be all worked up about that in light of the other stuff. But the good thing is this, one of our main purposes in Church of the Fair was to be an example of Christ to the community that's out there, and that mission was still accomplished. So thank you guys for that, and we'll just uh, try to do a little better next year. We'll do a little different weather praying or something. Those of you that didn't go, by the way, who skipped out because it was supposed to be like a billion degrees and you thought it was going to be hot, joke's on you. It wasn't hot at all. Um, It was deadly with a lightning, but it wasn't hot, so ha ha, you were wrong. Uh, Luke chapter 11 is where we're going to be this morning. We got a lot of territory to cover. If this is your first time visiting us, you're going to love this text. It's going to be super interesting for you. You might think we're weirdos, but we're not. Just keep coming around. We'll prove you that you're just as weird as us. But um, this is quite a text we got to go through, and I got a few disclaimers. I got some side notes I have to throw at you for this kind of stuff. We're going to be talking about things such as judgment and the return of Christ judgment. It's going to talk about people getting ripped to shreds and things like that. Like it's some pretty crazy stuff. We're going to be looking at some pretty gnarly stuff here. And um, we're going to try to do, 
So even in studying this, I have felt myself get pulled in lots of different directions, chasing rabbit trail after rabbit trail after rabbit trail about some of the things Jesus is talking about. And here's what we're going to try really hard not to do this morning is chase those rabbit trails. Um, because there's so many directions we could go and so many things we could look at, study, speculate on. Um, but Jesus here is teaching us specific people in real time. And we're going to try to try to just say, hey, what is he telling his disciples here? Because he could have given a lot more detail on different things than he did, but he had a purpose in what he was given. So we're going to try to hang with that today to the best of our ability. And one of the reasons that I want to do this is because when we start talking about things such as judgment, um, there can be a, a mentality among us sometimes because that sounds bad, like judgment from God. Ugh, no, let's go find some warm, fuzzy scriptures to make us feel better. Um, because, uh, well, this is what I think of. So back in the day, I was working with this guy named Ryan, and I remember coming to work one day, and um, his son, who was maybe, I don't know, three at the time or something, was really, really young. And I remember I walked in, and Ryan's at his office, at, at his desk, and he just had this deer-in-a-headlights look on his face, like chaos had punched him in the gut and he didn't know what to do and he was just sort of sitting there like like that and I I came in and I'm like Ryan what's going on he's like my son I don't know what I'm gonna do with this kid like he's already figuring me out I don't know what to do and he's telling about some situation where the kid was misbehaving and he's trying to discipline him and it's not working and he's not getting anywhere and he said he got to a point with his kid he goes he goes if I have to deal with this one more time you're about to get a spanking and he said my son literally goes a hard one or a medium one? And he was like, at that moment, I knew I was done. Like, what am I supposed to, he's doing the math to go, maybe it's worth it anyway. I don't know, kind of a thing. And he was just, and then he's looking into his future like this is what it's going to be. Well, there's a way we can do this with scripture. When we talk about things like judgment, like in this text, we're going to see the mission of the church as well as God calling saying, hey, I'm coming back again, by the way. You're going to stand before me, by the way. I'm coming back again. And, and what we can do is become like that kid that goes, but what, okay, but hold on, judgment, what does that really mean? Like, is it really that? And, and you can go this route that it almost lessens the imperatives that Jesus is clearly pushing across in this text. So we're not going to be the kid that tries to weigh what the punishment looks like. We want to let the text speak to us. And, and feel it and understand it in the same way that his listeners did in that very day. And trust that he's Lord and he knows what's best for us. Amen? So that's what we're going to do today. Now, another disclaimer, as we did two weeks ago, I want to remind you who's talking here. Because it's easy to look at scripture and kind of segregate out the entities of the Trinity in the Bible. And here's what I mean. Christian theology believes that God is three in one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons with distinct personalities, even roles to some extent, but one God. It's, it's an incredible mystery in the Bible. You say, how does that work? How can you be three and one at the same time? Don't worry, I have a master's degree in theology. The answer to that is, I don't know. But it's true. It's true. And what we can tend to do is read the Bible as if, okay, Old Testament, that's all God. Then the Gospels come and Jesus gets in the picture. So the Gospels are about Jesus. Then we get into the Holy Spirit in Acts and he's working through the rest of it. No, 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 no. That's not the way it is. In fact, like, look at the creation account, can we? Can we put the text from Genesis up on the screen here for us? Look at this. In the, in the Genesis creation account, 
Then God said, let what? Us make man in what? Our image after what? Our likeness. Now, I went to public schools in the South, but that seems plural to me. Right here in the Genesis account of Scripture, we see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in discussion with one another as they're creating. That means Jesus is not just the one who shows up on the scene here. Jesus is the one who's always been on the scene and who created heaven and earth. In fact, let's go on to the next text here. From the book of John. Speaking of Jesus, it says, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through who? Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. That's a fancy long way of saying Jesus made everything. Nothing was made apart from him. And then look what Colossians says also about Jesus. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Again, it means Jesus created everything. And the thing that we noticed two weeks ago is when God creates everything in perfection, he created it to work in a certain way. If you're a designer, you know that you design things to work in a certain way. Now, someone can go against your design and try that all they may, and it's usually going to be a lot harder or not work at all. If you need to go chop down a tree someplace and you pick up an axe and decide to hold it by the metal part and hit the wood part against the tree, you can knock yourself out all you want. Go for it. You are a free person in America. It's not bringing that tree down, though. Like There's certain things that are just designed to operate a certain way. And we saw some of this when in the very creation account because God creates all the things on the earth. God creates everything as it says right here. But then on the seventh day, God does what? He rested. Why? Does God need rest? Was God tired from six days of hard work? No, but he knew we would be. So even in the creation account, God's creating rhythms to say, look, this is how life's best going to work. You're going to work for a while, but you're going to need these patterns of rest. And we know, I mean, even in our culture now, we can see exhaustion because we don't rest well. Um, there's just all sorts of patterns. Like God knows what we need, and he's created everything to operate in, search in a certain way. And you go, Jeff, why are you talking about all this? Because the stuff that Jesus is calling us to in these texts is for our good, and it's the way things are designed to operate, whether we like those things or not. He's not wooing us, toward, or he's, not, he's not calling us to just do random rules that he's like, I want this, and I want this, and I want this. It's not what he's doing. He's calling us to kingdom living to say, listen, This is the way you're designed to live. This is the way the kingdom of God operates. And I, Jesus, am putting all things back together. So live as kingdom ambassadors even now. And so that's really good for us to remember because we can hit sometimes the hard things of Scripture. And we have this mentality of like God's just being grumpy or he's just being a rule monger or a glory hog or something like that and wants all the attention or whatever the case may be. No, no, no. He is wooing us towards joy and he's saying, I've designed you and I've designed things to work in a certain way. 
and you will not find joy and fulfillment any other way. I'm the designer. I'm the creator. And so in this text, don't just think of Jesus as the rabbi working his way through Israel. Remember, this is the same one who created the land he's actually walking on. He's the same one who created the people he's talking to, whether he's calling them out or whether he's comforting them. And he's the same one that the scriptures tell us loves us. He has good. His desire is good for them. This is what's happening here in this text. Really good for us to remember as we're doing these things. He created everything. He knows how everything works. And he's calling people towards joy. Amen? You guys with me on that? All right, with that in mind, let's just dive into it because we'll be starting here on verse 35. And the Word of God says this, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like the men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those, who, those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, He will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch, which is about midnight, or the third watch, which is right before dawn, and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Now, Jesus is using some different imagery that's kind of cultural imagery at the time. So I got another disclaimer for you to be aware of. Some of the things he's going to say in this text and the words he's going to use to teach this lesson he wants his guys to understand, he's going to use words that in some cases are either unfamiliar for us or maybe even straight up offensive to us. Things like slavery. He's going to talk about brutal punishments. Here he's using Passover imagery. And you have to remember, he's talking to a real people in a real historical time, so there's real context to what he's saying. And that's important. Context matters because words don't have meaning, words in context have meaning. And this is what I mean by that. If I was to just say, oh man, she killed him, what does that mean? Well, it kind of (laughs) depends. If we're talking about a game of Uno and the wife won, well, that's not so bad. If we're talking about life, death, murder, whole nother issue, right? So we need to know the context that's going on to be able to understand some of this stuff. So when we see some of these difficult things, just keep your seatbelt on and we'll try to address some of these things as they go. Just remember, he's talking to a group of people, like in our context, slavery is an evil thing. It was just a, a reality of life at the time there. And so he's pointing to real things, real events, real history in order to teach the people that he's talking to. So he uses Passover language, for example, and he says, be dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. What's he talking about here? He's talking about when Israel was enslaved in Egypt, they were slaves in the late nation of Egypt, and God sent Moses and Aaron to go and deliver the people of Israel, or used them to deliver the people of Israel from slavery and captivity. You guys remember this story? And remember there was a series of plagues because Pharaoh wouldn't let the people go and Moses said let them go and Pharaoh wouldn't let them go and so there were plagues. There were frogs, there was fire and hail and all kinds of crazy stuff that happened. But the last one was the kicker. 
The last one was the one where this angel of death came through and the firstborn of every animal and human was going to die because of Egypt's rebellion against God. But God told the people of Israel, you're going to take a lamb, a perfect spotless lamb. You're going to sacrifice that lamb and take the blood from that lamb and you're going to paint the doorposts here and that blood will be a sign so that when that angel comes and sees the blood there, he's going to pass over your house and your sons will be spared. It was a picture of the gospel that it would be the blood of Christ spilled on our behalf that prevents us from enduring the sin or the, excuse me, the punishment, the death that sin causes us to actually deserve. So this happens. They put the blood on the door. That night happens. And then God gave them packing instructions. He was like, guys, listen, this is what's going to happen. Your window to leave, I'm paraphrasing grossly, but your window to leave is going to be small. So here's the deal. Pack like this. Have your cloaks on. Have your tunic, your belts all fastened. Your shoes are laced up. You're ready to go. Have your food packed. Don't even cook leavened bread. You won't have time to wait for that bread to rise. Like it's going to be a hurried thing. You need to be able to do this really, really quickly. Be dressed for action. And so to the people of Israel now... In this context, who would have understood that story, he's saying to the disciples, listen, you stay dressed for action. Always be ready and keep your lamps burning. Well, what does that mean? Well, lamps burning in that context was speaking to the actual, the revelation that God had given Israel. The idea that if the world is a fallen, dark place, God has revealed himself through the nation of Israel and through the scriptures that he's given them. And the purpose of Israel was to be a missionary nation that spread the good news of God all over the place. So they were supposed to be the torchbearers, if you will, who carry this good news to the rest of the world. And he's now calling us to do this. Now, this is all imagery that Israel will be aware of from the scripture, but not things they've necessarily personally experienced. Because Israel has failed greatly in this situation. But he's calling the church. He's like, listen, always be ready. And the, the, the words he uses are like that. Be ready. Be ready to go. Waiting. Watching. Readiness. He talks about opening the door. You ever had like guests that were coming over and your kids know that they're coming and they just stand at the door and look out that little side window by the door and watch for them. And the guests aren't even there yet and they're already opening the door. That's what he's talking about. Like, always be ready for the master's coming. And be like men who are waiting on their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants that he finds awake. So another cultural image, but this is important. This is going to carry us through the rest of the text. So the idea was this. The master at the home has gone away to be part of a wedding feast. There he's going to, to they're at the, the wedding feast, they're celebrating, they're partying, but he's left these, these servants that he has in his home back home. And their job is to take care of the home. Tend the things that belong to who? The master. It's not their house, it's the master's house. Be the ones who are taking care of the master's house and being good stewards of that knowing and doing so in such a way that you're aware he could be coming home at any minute. And so you're living that way. You want to be about your job, not asleep on the couch, not doing your work. But when the master comes, you want to see that things are taken care of, that they're in great shape. And you don't want to be like me when my wife goes out of town. And this is what I mean by that. Not long ago, my wife went out of town. She went up to Portland to do some work. And oftentimes I will do this. She's in the room right now. So I'm exposing myself, which is not a great idea. But here we go. 
she'll be on her way home. Me and the kids are there. We're watching movies, whatever the case may be. And I'm like, hey, have you guys left yet? Yeah. Okay, they just left. Four and a half hours from Portland. They might stop from lunch. I'm doing the math. Hey, call me when you get to Roseburg. Now, why? Because I'm on the couch. <laughs> or playing with the kids or whatever the case may be. Why Roseburg? I figure it's about an hour and a half-ish away, something like that. I can probably make the place look okay within an hour and a half, and that way she doesn't come home, find a mess in the kitchen, and I'm laying on the couch. I could probably pull that off. So, hey, honey, oh, good, glad you're making it, glad everything's safe. Why don't you just give me a call when you get to Roseburg, let me know how you're doing. Call from Roseburg comes, what happens? All right, kids, here's what I need. I need you to vacuum, I need you to, and all this kind of stuff, right? Okay. Israel was supposed to be waiting on the Messiah, And who's here? He's here. And they've missed it. But there's a further context that now he's teaching the church and teaching his disciples. Hey, listen, church, you are to live in such a way that you're always ready for the moment that Jesus arrives. Jesus, when he comes back, and it is a undeniable fact of scripture, we argue left and right about when and all of that kind of stuff. But he's coming back. And we don't know when, but he's not calling when he gets to Roseburg. (laughs) He's not going to do it. He's just going to be here. And he's calling us as Christians to live in this kingdom mindset in such a way that we are always ready. And if you think about it, sometimes we think of it like we got to live really, really good so that when he comes, we're proud and then it's a break. No, no, no. When he comes, we are kingdom ambassadors with him installing the new kingdom of God here on earth. So he's saying you are to live now as if the kingdom was already here in its full present state. Not waiting. And going, all right, I'll I'll get there eventually. But right now, I'm just going to kick back and rest for a little while. And and I'll tell you guys. So this is uh, the the theological word here is eschatology, study of the end times. And I'll be honest with you. I always get a little bit nervous when we're going into texts that talk about the second coming, about the return of Jesus and eschatology. And here's why. Because we can get so caught up in the details and focusing on the when and what's it going to look like and all of that kind of stuff that we can live in such a way that we're like, okay, I'll get ready when he gets to Roseburg. Right now I'm kind of watching and I don't know, I look at the world events right now, maybe he's around Eugene, it looks pretty close. But when he gets to Roseburg, I'll know because this will happen and this will happen, I think. I know everybody argues on it, but I got it all figured out. So when it gets to here, I'll know. That's not what Christians are called to live. Some of the people who do the least kingdom work are some people who know the most about the second coming and revelation and all that kind of stuff. Is that stuff bad? Of course not. It's in scripture. But what's the point? The point is, hey, persevere. It's worth it. There are good things coming. I haven't left you as orphans. I'm coming back for you. I'm going to rescue you from the fallenness that's there. But live ready. Church, don't let the light go out on your lamp. Well, we know what that means if you know very much about any of the Jesus teachings you've ever heard even maybe since Sunday school, that we are to be a light into the world. We've been given the gospel, and it is our job as the church to do everything that Israel didn't do. We're to be the ones that are these kingdom representatives that, are, that as we are blessed, we then are a blessing to others. Remember, this all comes right after his teachings about money. 
his teachings about worries over where we're going to live, his teachings over status through clothing and all those kind of things. And that's not the way he's calling us to live. He's saying, listen, you need to live now as if Jesus is at the door. You need to live now as if he's going to be here any moment. And living now means, well, we're going to see some more of this, but it's some of this stuff that's, that we're seeing even as we go through Luke. And if you guys ever are, are you're looking like, man, the, the five-year plan that we kind of rolled out a few weeks ago and all that kind of stuff, like, why would you do all that? Why would you do all that? Because, man, the more we study these things and the more we see these things, the more we're like, man, Jesus is really serious about us doing this stuff. And so we, we just want to mobilize and do the best that we can so that when the master comes, we're found faithful. And look at the things that he says. When the master returned from the wedding, what is it that would happen? Well, the idea was the servants are all here and they're kind of taking care of everything. They're making sure the house is in good order. Remember, they don't own it. They're just stewards. And when the master returns from the wedding ceremony, what does it say happens? The master becomes a servant and he turns around and he starts blessing and serving the servants that are actually there. It's like he came back from this feast and he's like, you guys have done so great, man. I'm going to reward you guys. Look, I'm going to serve you now. Well, there's two ways of looking at that. First of all, again, who's here speaking? Jesus. And he's right there with them. And what did Jesus end up doing? Well, he says it throughout the scriptures over and over. Things like, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. Remember the Last Supper? He he disrobes himself, takes on the robe of a servant. He serves a meal to his disciples. He washes their feet. And then what does he say? What I've done for you, I've given you an example that you would do this thing for others. And then what does he say? happy are you if you do these things. And so now we move into the church age. There's the example Jesus gave us that we're to be servants, that we're to serve others, whether it be through meals or acts of kindness or whatever, that we're to be this Jesus-like example to other people around us, and he's coming again. And he's, he's making this speech right now in the midst of a whole group of people, many of which are trying to get rid of him because they refuse to recognize that the Messiah they were waiting for all along is standing right there in front of them. And he's saying to his disciples, you don't be like this. You live ready all the time. I'm coming. I'm coming. Be that person who is blessed, highly favored, ready for when I return. And think about the overall context. I mean, remember how this meal, this whole thing started out. It started out with a dinner. You guys remember that? It's been a long time since we were in that part because we teach slow apparently. But it, it started at a dinner that some Pharisees put on and they start grilling Jesus and he pronounced three woes on them. Remember? For each of them, he's like, hey, woe unto you, woe unto you, woe unto you. And he was calling them out. You guys, the religious leaders who are supposed to be leading people out here, you're living like this and your heart is nothing like me. Oh, you do things on the outside. You're all polished. You look the part. You look churchy and pure and holy, but your hearts are decaying. You're doing all of this stuff for yourself. You're doing all of this stuff for your own attention. You're doing all this stuff because you're basically gluttonous and you want everyone to think of you as being esteemed and lifted up rather than esteeming and lifting me up. Your hearts are far from me. And then remember that one dude that piped up when he shouldn't have? 
Like he's that guy that's like, oh, master, you offend us too. And the guy goes, well, I, and Jesus is like, okay, well, I got some for you too. And then he turns to the lawyers and scribes and he says, you're, you're throwing burdens on people. You're not helping anyone. You're, and he goes on and on and on with these guys. And so he gets up from the meal and he's leaving the meal. And the scriptures tell us that these Pharisees and scribes are following him like they're still trying to get him. So as he's leaving the meal, they're going, yeah, but hang on, but what about this? Oh, yeah, and what about that? And they're like following him, pursuing him, trying to bait him into these arguments, trying to catch him. And this crowd develops. And so now he's got these people around him. He's got his disciples. He's got these scribes and Pharisees that are all out to get him. And he turns to him and he starts teaching. And what are his teachings? He starts out as Jeremy just wonderfully walked us through. He's like, listen, don't be hypocrites like these guys. They preach one thing, they live something else completely. They're actors like they're wearing masks. Don't be like that. He goes into, and by the way, if you live against the, what they're calling to do, if you live for my kingdom, men are going to persecute you, but you don't fear that. Don't be afraid of what some man can do to you. The worst thing he can do to you is kill you. And you go, well, that seems pretty bad. Well, maybe unless you think about one who can cast to hell or place you in heaven, that's where your fear should really be. And then he moves into, though, these, these issues of how to live in such a way that just honors God. He talks about the, this idea of fears, and he talks about anxieties, and he's like, look, 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 look. Don't worry. Don't be anxious. Don't be caught up in how you're supposed to live. Remember that guy chimes in and says, Master, uh, my brother has not shared his inheritance with me. Make him divide it. And Jesus doesn't even answer him. He's just kind of like, look, look, look. You guys are worrying about the wrong things. You need to live and seek the kingdom of God first. Don't worry. And he does it in such a gracious, it's like he gets more and more tender and gracious as he's talking to his disciples. And he's, he reminds them, first and foremost, he's like, listen, you have a father. Your father is good. Your father loves you. Your father, look how he takes care of this bird or look how he takes care of this lily. Aren't you worth more than them? So you don't need to have fear. You don't need to have anxiety. Don't worry about that. Don't make money your idol. Don't make power or prestige your idol. Follow me. You have a good father. He'll take care of you. And so he comes out of that call and he's like, and stay ready. Live this way because he's returning this is what Jesus has called us to. But Peter chimes in. We love Peter. Amen if you love Peter. Because Peter says the things either we would say or the things we would want to say but we're too chicken to say. At least he has boldness or it might be stupidity. But Peter chimes in. Verse 41. And Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us all? So think about him right there. Jesus uses this parable talking about this faithful servant, like, hey, be ready. Master's going to come. There's work to do. Be faithful. Tend the things that he's left you in care of. And Peter's like, yeah, but, but you're talking to them though, right? Not us. I mean, because these guys clearly have work to do and we're, we're your favored ones. So clearly you don't mean us, right? God, I mean, we're going to be the ones telling everybody what to do and standing up and looking kind of holy. Like you're, that doesn't really apply to us too, does it, Jesus? And, and that's not that far-fetched of a leap for Peter to make because that's the example that the Israeli religious leadership has set for him throughout history. There are people who have received the blessing of God and then done nothing with it but get fat themselves and live as if instead of people who receive God's favor, they're God's favorites. 
And in the same way, they were to be the missionary nation that carried that torch out into the world and showed people who God is and taught people about God's love. They've not done any of that, and they've just sat back, and really they've divided the entire world into Jew and Gentile. God's favored, and all those people we don't even want to be in contact with. And here's Peter. Yeah, but we're your favorites, right? That doesn't really apply to me, right? It's not us, right? Church, hear me, because Jesus is now talking directly to his disciples. He's talking against those that would say, yeah, I'm watched for the second coming. I'm ready for Christ to come. I've been reading left behind books and I've got all my outlines and my charts laid out and I'm pretty sure I know who Antichrist is. I thought it was Putin before, but it turns out he's just crazy. But now I'm thinking it might be this other dude. Like you've got all those different things figured out and that's none of that is what he's talking about here. He's talking about being the torchbearers for the gospel and the love of grace of God into the community and into the city and into the rest of the world. That's what he's talking about. There is not a theological chart to be found in this text. So church, he's talking to us. Amen? Say, it's us. It's us. So Peter, not us, right? It's us. Verse 42, and the Lord said, some heavy stuff here, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand more. Woo! Jeff, quick, get to a light fluffy passage. Not going to happen. Now, three things to understand here. First is this. Again, these are terms and situations that are common in their context. Don't forget, like, capital punishment then included crucifixion that would leave the dead body sitting outside the city gates as a warning to everybody. So it was a very brutal time in that way. Uh, Second of all, notice that Jesus is referred to here as Lord It's going to happen nine more times throughout this passage. The names of God, the different names that are used, are always used with a certain intentionality. Like we saw in the text regarding fear and anxiety, um, Jesus is talking about the Father. He wants you to understand there is a caring, loving Father that will encourage you, that will comfort you, that will take care of you. Here, he's talking Lord. This is sovereign king, ruler of all, Lord. Like someone to be respected that we don't have position to trifle with. And then the third one is this. Remember, Peter's trying to get out of this. Peter's going, yeah, but this isn't us, right? And so Jesus' story is given in response to Peter saying, but not us. We don't have to do anything, right? So he's talking to us. And the things he talks about, this parable he gives, is that 
the follower of Christ, the servant waiting on the return of Jesus can fall into one of two categories. The first one is a conscientious steward of God's property. Someone who is faithfully caring for what has been put into his stewardship. And if you remember two weeks ago, we talked about the idea that that for the Christian, whether it be money, property, whatever the case may be, there's not ownership, there's stewardship. Because we recognize everything we have is a gift from God that we are to steward. It's been given that we might be responsible for using it in a way that honors God and spreads the kingdom of God. And he's saying, hey, for that servant, I'm going to put him in charge of all of my things. Interestingly enough, too, that he actually says, um, blessed is the servant. No, I'm sorry. In that first question, 42, who is the faithful and wild manager, wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give him their portion of food at the proper time? Like he's, look, I'm taking care of him. This guy is actually serving others on my behalf. It's the faithful, conscientious steward. And, uh. I don't want to blow too much for you here, but I'll give you the shortcut to the quiz. This is the one we want. <laughs> That's the good one. The next one, not so much. So this, the first one is this servant who is, is faithful, steward of what God's given him. The second one, he tells the story of this servant who the master's gone, and he's like, eh, the master's not going to be back anytime soon. And so he starts beating the other servants. He's eating and drinking. He's taking all the things that are in the house that are under his stewardship and he's using them now for himself. He's not feeding others at their time. He's feeding himself. He's, he's gluttonous. He's living for his own pleasures. He's allowing his, his opportunity to, to do this. So in such a way, he's, he's living to serve self and advantage himself even at the expense of others. And the idea of him beating the other slaves is like now he's the ruler. He's the master, not the master who left. He's God, so he'll live in such a way that serves him, and he wants everyone else to fall in line with him and with his needs. He's the new God. Remember, he's talking to the disciples. Now, I don't think any of us would claim to live in such a way that we would say, I'm God, he's not. None of us would say that, but we've all functionally done it. We've all lived in those sorts of ways where everything that's been given us to steward is for us. And we live in such a way that it doesn't even cross our mind that God's going to return or that these things belong to him. And we've treated others with disdain or forced people into line just so they do what we want to serve us. Everyone exists for my pleasure, for my desires, whether they be monetary, attention, sexual, any of those kind of things. It's all about me. Everything exists to serve me. And that's what Israel had done all along. When Israel was called to be that missionary nation and they didn't do it, and they just got all inward focused and all came about them, man, go read the prophets. When the prophets came and were saying to Israel over and over and over, God blessed you that you might bless others and instead you became fat on what God has given you. It's, it's a picture of gluttonous that you're just taking in and taking in and taking in and you're not giving out at any place whatsoever. And please understand this, church. He calls this evil. Not, not like uh, less desirable, but evil. Because when in doing this, we exalt ourselves over our master. We functionally live not just as atheists, but as if we are God. But at the same time, too, it despises the grace that God has shown us. 
Because don't forget this same man who's talking here, Jesus Christ, at this point in the text has his face set towards Jerusalem. He's headed to Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world. He's going there to be a servant to us all where the blame of all of our sin will be upon his shoulders. And then he turns and offers us grace through faith and says, though you were enemies, I'll adopt you into my family. Just have faith and follow me. And for us to go, yeah, I'm in. And then turn around and refuse the call of God? I I don't think you can understand the gospel of God and still want to live that way. And this is what he's calling them to do. When you think of that mission that we've rolled out of the church, all of those kind of things, this is why we have to be about those different things. These aren't political movements. These aren't justice initiatives or any of that kind of stuff. This is about kingdom-minded, what does it look like to follow Jesus the way Jesus really intended it to do. And this is what he's called the church to do, to be the faithful steward who is serving, who is feeding others, who is, who is carrying the torch of the gospel to the world around him. Now, side note, you might have a question here. Why is God so mean, though? I mean, did he really just say that? Jesus just said, I'm going to slice them into pieces? Is that really what Jesus said? Why is he so mean? I want you to understand something. We can get to some of these things and it can be really easy to either try to explain them away or or, or something like that. Or we can even get into the mindset that has God in the Old Testament is kind of grumpy, but then Jesus comes and he's nice and then things kind of turn good after that. And I just want to push real hard against that for just a moment. This is really important for us to understand. In the Old Testament, when Moses went to God and said, show me your glory, um, we tend to think of glory almost as if like this glow or this radiance or something like that, but it's, it's more than that. And when he's saying, show me your glory, he's saying, I want to see your essence. I want to know you. I want to know who you are. I want to know about your, your nature, your character. God, show me who you are. I want to experience who you are. And so when God reveals himself to Moses, he does it by declaring his name, which as we've said, names mean something. They're, they talk about who you are. They're, they're talking about God's essence. And when God does this, look what it is he does. Look in, the, in Exodus. It says, The Lord passed before him, speaking of Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, here's what can happen. We can read that and go, man, that bottom part's gnarly. On children's children and stuff, that doesn't even sound fair. What is that all about? Or we can read this kind of text like we're talking about with Jesus and you just hit things like slave or hit things like cut to pieces or terms like judgment and we just go skew negative and and push God into this category where he's just mad or mean and we forget everything else. Like, look what it says. Uh, If you were to describe yourself to someone else, my guess is the first things you would say are probably the more important things about who you are. And look what he says. God's what? First one, merciful. The second, gracious. Third, slow to anger. Fourth, abounding in steadfast love. Fifth, he's faithful. Sixth, he keeps steadfast love for thousands 
Seventh, he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. Like over and over and over. It's like before he even gets to the judgment part, he wants to press on us on his grace and his patience and his love. And the people of Israel are the total example of this. I mean, think about it. Starts in the garden. Adam and Eve created in perfection. What do they do? Rebel against God. I want to be my own God. I want to call my own shot. So there's rebellion. God covers them and graciously still forgives. A sacrifice is made on their behalf. So now you have the first family. First brothers are there. How did that go? One literally killed the other. One first family, by the way, one brother literally kills another brother. And it just keeps escalating and escalating to the point that there's a flood. There's so much sin on the world that there's a flood that has to come through and purge. And now God starts with Israel, which by the way, even the flood was a a thread of grace as we see through the story of Moses. It's a story, or excuse me, the story of Noah. It's one we can't chase today because we're not chasing rabbit trails. But then it goes to Abraham and the story of Israel. And God makes a covenant with them and says, I'm going to be your God and you'll be my people. And here's how our relationship's going to work. How'd that go? Terrible. Even after he rescued them out of Egypt and in slavery, all they did was grumble and complain the whole time. He literally brought poor, helpless, beaten slaves out and was feeding them himself and they just complained about it. And the terms of the covenant, the way that they were supposed to live, they didn't do any of that stuff. Some of the things in that covenant they never even did once. And yet God's constantly faithful to He Understand that. For thousands upon thousands of years, the history of mankind is replete with one constant, and that is rebellion against God. And yet the history of God with mankind is replete with another constant. It is his faithfulness and grace and patience over and over and over. Well, then Jesus comes on the scene. How did that go? He gets denied. He gets rejected. The very religious leaders that were supposed to know the most about Jesus are the leaders in trying to get rid of him. But the church age comes, we'll fix everything, right? (laughs) Persecution, rebellion. I mean, read the stories of the early church just in Corinthians. You can tell things ain't going so swell all the time. And yet he is so gracious and so patient now for 2,000 years post-resurrection. And then you go, well, that's my other thing, Jeff. Like you guys have been saying this Jesus coming back thing for so long. I remember in the 70s, you know what I just found on Amazon Prime? Oh, the name's escaped. Thief in the Night. Anybody remember that movie? If you remember that movie, you're officially old. If you've not seen that movie, I can't say I recommend it. But it's on Amazon Prime right now. And for some reason, when I was a kid, that movie terrified me. And then it was all like, Jesus is coming back now. Jesus is coming back now. Go into the 80s or, or late 70s, early 80s, Cold War, Russia, World War III. It's going to be any day now. Then we went into the Gulf War, Saddam Hussein, um, on and on and on. Tony Blair, I was convinced, was the Antichrist. Like, I was convinced. You should have seen his face. But anyway, then we go into all this other stuff. Now we got, like, Putin. He might be the Antichrist, but no, he's just crazy. Like, all this, like, on and on and on. Christians have been saying forever, Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back it's going to be today it's going to be today it's going to be today and some of you on the fringe are setting dates and that never works out you guys are all lying it's all though just testimony to God's grace because what does he say in second Peter the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises some count slowness but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish but that all would reach repentance he is gracious and he's waiting And he's even leaning on us in this text because there's people out there that haven't come to him yet that he's patiently waiting for. And he wants us to go get him. He's patient. 
but he's coming. And he's not going to call from Roseburg. And he will not ignore sin ultimately. And one day, we will either stand under the covering of Jesus Christ or we will stand on our own quote-unquote merit. And that won't get us anywhere. This is, he is gracious. He is not grumpy. God is good. And it's the very fact that he's good that eventually the time has to come. He will not ignore sin and iniquity forever. But for those of us that got saved in recent modern history, aren't you glad he waited a little while? He's good. He waited for you. Amen? And he's waiting for others too. Well, he goes on in verse 49 of Luke chapter 12. I got seven minutes to finish this, so let's hustle. Um, He says this. There's some more uh, eschatological type language. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, and then the other two that Luke really didn't need to throw in because we knew these, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. So what what is this? Well, he starts out by saying, I came to cast fire from earth. Fire speaks um, uh, biblically in many cases of, of a purging. Um, it's something we're very familiar with at the moment, correct? So those of you that got evacuation notices like we did in Central Point last week, have you driven by where the fire was over here? If you haven't, go drive by it. And, and as you drive past, not just looking at the houses that have been charred and some of that kind of stuff, as you drive past towards I-5, notice how all that area back towards the greenway and stuff like that, that used to be so grown in with underbrush and all that kind of stuff, you couldn't see it all. You can kind of see through the trees a little bit now, you know? It purges. Um, as many of you guys know, uh, with some of the forest fires, just this last week, we had this really cool opportunity. Um, ran into some people from a fire crew here locally, got a hold of Sweet Tea Express, and Friday night, we actually got to put a dinner together, as well as like lots of like snacks, power bars, apples, oranges, bottled water, stuff like that, and it went to one of the fire crews that's working the overnight shift. So every night while we're asleep, this is a local crew, all local people from here, who are working, I think right now they're on the fire outside of Grants Pass. And we found out they go up there and they work and they get eight hours off. And that eight hours starts the moment they punch out at the fire. So from that point, what is it, like maybe an hour from that place, hour drive home, take a shower, get something to eat, hopefully lay down, get some sleep, get back up, get dressed, get something to eat, drive the hour back there, boom, back on the clock. Eight hours just to do all that stuff. And so things like meals for them are really tough. So we arranged a meal to get delivered out to their actual place so that they can kind of eat on company time, you know, save them a little bit of sleep and rest. And I was talking with some of them and they were like, I'm like, so what is happening out there? Because it didn't used to be like this all the time here, right? Like those of you in real estate must be really nervous about our summers because I don't know how many people were going to keep wanting to move to Medford if this is what our summers look like with these fires. And, And so I'm talking with them about this, like what is going on? And one of the things they said was just like, look, when the logging all shut down, now there's so much fuel up there, sooner or later, it's gonna, something's going to happen to it. 
So there is a thing about fires that they purge and they clear out the trash and it clears out the underbrush. And this is the same kind of language. So understand there's a twofold ministry to Jesus coming. Part of it was the baptism he speaks of, that he came to die on our behalf, that we might be saved. And the other part that will especially be visible when Jesus' second coming happens is there is a purging. There is a cleansing of a fallen world where all of this fallenness and all of this brokenness that we see around us all of the time will finally be burned away. And it's real and it's necessary. And it's for our ultimate good, though for the destruction of those who reject Jesus. But his coming does cause a realignment of sorts. Like he's talking about there's going to be division, not peace, and, and arguments between mother and father, between, or between father and son, between mother and daughter. Brothers is one thing. We see that. I mean, shoot, the first two killed each other. But mother and son and all that's a little bit more intense, a little bit different. But this was all predicted. There were texts. We don't have time to go to them, guys. I'm not going to use the slides right now. But in Luke chapter 2, uh, it was spoken over Jesus when he was a child that he would be for the rising and falling of many. But then also in Luke chapter 1, it talks about how John the Baptist was going to go before and this mission was going to take place. And in Luke 1 verse 17, it says that the purpose was going to be, and hear this, to make ready a people, excuse me, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So here's what I want, I want to push on right here, this idea of the division that can take place, the realignment that happens with regards to following Jesus or not following Jesus. Because what can happen is this. And he's warning his people to live according to my kingdom will cause division. It's going to cause problems. People are going to persecute you. He's, he's really telling them, this is just the reality of this, that being on mission to save lives does put you in harm's way with a lot of people that are out there. That's going to happen. And he says that this, this realignment takes place. And he, here's what happens sometimes is that we as Christians experience some of that. That division comes. It could even be heated. It's happening in our culture a lot. And we'll look around the culture, we'll see things like, oh, so now we can't have Ten Commandments in the courthouse anymore. And now we can't teach this in the school anymore. And now we can't do this. And so we see these battle lines drawn. And we see the division occur. But know this. The realignment that takes place under, for those who are under the covering and following Jesus Christ is not for separation ultimately. He's making a people for the Lord prepared for the Lord's mission. So when those lines are drawn, what I'm saying is, is that we don't go, all right, and we'll just barricade up, we'll bulk up all our political arguments, we'll bulk up all our theological arguments, we'll get all our bombs and rockets ready to go to war to just beat people down. No, 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 when those lines exist, now we know who we need to go save. That the purpose of being separated is that we become usable for God to be on mission for him to do the very things that Israel never did. And too often when those lines get drawn, we just get mad, like we've lost, and we take it against us. Forget that Jesus said, look, when they reject you, look, it's about me. They're rejecting me. But the beauty of a polarized society that we live in now where the middle ground's kind of gone is we know exactly who we need to teach about Jesus. The people who say, I don't come to church, I don't want anything to do with your religion are the people you need to be praying for the most. It's just made it clear for us, but it's not for isolation that, okay, that's them and we're us and now we'll just stay over here. That's what Israel did. And Israel gets called out for that. Yes, Jesus causes division, 
but it's to separate us for his purposes that we might go for those that are still lost because he loves them and he's still trying to save them. You with me on that, church? That's really important. We gotta finish. Verse 54, and so he turns to the crowds. He said also to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, by the way, we know this well after last week. Um, Verse 54, he said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And here's what he's saying. He's like, you guys listen. And he's now turned away from the disciples to these scribes, Pharisees, the Jewish people there. It's like, you guys see clouds building up up there? You know there's a storm coming, and and you can predict it, and you're right. When the south winds begin to blow, the, you know it's going to be warmer air. There was a, a, that's kind of how meteorology will work down there. With those south winds bring air up from the hotter deserts down there, and it causes the temperatures to rise. You feel the wind coming from the south, you know it's going to be hot. Awesome. You guys are great meteorologists. Explain to me this, though. You've been studying the scriptures in which you're supposed to be waiting for the Messiah forever. You're waiting for the kingdom of God, and you don't even realize I'm standing right here in front of you. So you've missed this. They missed the first coming. So what's the application for us on this? That we don't miss the second coming. So whether that be the person who needs to understand who Jesus is and be saved, or whether that be us who are called to be faithful stewards of what God's given us and to be spreading the word so that other people be saved, we need to live in an understanding that he's coming and not miss it. To not be experts at reading everything else and forget what we're even doing right here. In verse 57, why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. It's another cultural um, Uh, description. He's saying that if you and someone else are having a dispute over money, he's saying, hey, work it out now before you go to the judge. Now, some people think this is a definitive statement about how Christians should handle legal matters. That is not what this is. This is a parable. It's an analogy. He's saying, if you had a problem with someone over money, you should work it out now while you have a chance to work it out and, and, and kind of have even some say and be able to work with this thing because if you go to the judge, he'll make a decision and your input will never matter again. And there'll be an officer that'll go with you and make sure you do exactly what the judge said, but your will, your desires, your heart in the whole matter won't matter anymore once you're in front of the judge. And so what does that mean? It means church. If you don't, first of all, if you don't know Jesus, you need to be the church. You need to be saved. Last week, as we stood on the, 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 the stage at the Lithia Amphitheater, or is it Bymart Amphitheater now? I don't know. I get convinced. Uh, the expo grounds over there. We, we saw signs behind us, did we not? 
was lightning popping and it was coming close. Now, most of you guys don't know this, but the fairgrounds over there, especially because of the rides they have and the shows that they do, they actually have a meteorologist over there that was monitoring that whole entire thing. And so before we even started the service last week, they said, right now we're code orange, which means could get shut down. There's a danger coming. We just need to watch and be ready. There might be some news coming that they're going to shut us all down. So we're sitting there and we're like praying backstage. Me and Dale Schaefer from the NAS, Greg Spires from First Baptist, we're all back there praying. Worship team goes out, starts playing, and oh man, you guys, the, the worship team, if any of you guys were out, it sounded so good. I mean, it really sounded good, and they were having, the worship team for them, Church of the Fair is like a blast, because they're on this huge stage with this massive sound system, and they're just having a ball up there playing. But we're watching across the stage, there's a little dude in a booth over there that runs kind of the monitors for the sound system, and he had the phone that was going to get the call. And so we're just watching him. And right after they get the second song started, we see him pick up the phone and hold it to his ear. And Dale looked at me and he goes, there it is. I'm like, yep. And then you may have even noticed him. He goes walking across the back of the stage right in front of everybody kind of, but comes around there, comes around to the other side and he goes, hey guys, it's red now. We got to pull the plug. So when we went out on stage after that second song and shut it down, that wasn't really our call. The, the fairgrounds has to do that. And here's the thing. It wasn't a tough sell, Right. Like there was lightning popping everywhere behind us. I didn't have to pry any of you out of your seats to go to the places. But here's the deal. Like you could have ignored it. You could have been like, okay, I see the lightning coming. I've been told that lightning's coming. People have urged me to take shelter, but I don't want to hear any of that. I'm just going to stay out here on my own. You have the freedom to do that and to suffer accordingly. But God is gracious Jesus is coming again, and without Jesus Christ as your covering, you will not survive his return. But he's gracious. The same Jesus who's coming again is the Jesus who died for you, who died to pay a way that you might be reunited with God. And so like Jesus is saying right here, look, don't wait till you're in front of the judge and think you're going to be able to work things out right there. It will be out of your hands at that point. But be right with God now. And then church... He ain't calling when he gets to Roseburg. He won't. And the faithful servant understands that we are stewards of all the things that have been given us, but we're also stewards of the message of the gospel, the very means of salvation by which people all over our community right now desperately need to be saved. And we have got to be found faithful and be about the kingdom's business. Amen? Man, I did okay with the rabbit trails. There's so much more that I could talk about, but my clock says zero, zero, and I'm going to cut you guys loose. So will you stand and let's pray. Urge you, church. I'm, I'm taking a group of guys on a rafting trip this week, this leadership cohort that I've been doing, and we leave tomorrow morning. And for the last several days, we've been having communication back and forth with each other, text messages, emails, phone calls. Hey, so what do I need on the trip? What do I need to pack? What do I need? You know, all this kind of stuff. Because most of us have never done this. It's the wild and scenic section of the road. We've never really done that before. So we're having this interaction back and forth. What do I need to bring? What do I need to pack? Um, those are good conversations to have now. You know what a bad time to have that conversation is now? Tomorrow around midday. When we're already downriver and there ain't no motor to bring you back home to grab the thing that you forgot, that's too late to pack. Now's the time to have those discussions. So I want to encourage you guys, 
Don't be the person who just came to church today, did your church thing, and then goes on and lives as if none of this stuff's actually in the Bible. Like, think about this. Pray about this. Have discussions amongst your family about this. How can we live in such a way that that torch is being held up high, that we are bringing the light of the gospel to the world around us, and that we are good stewards of what God has given us, ministering to the needs of people around us? And don't wait. Like I said, he ain't calling when he gets to Roseburg. That line will stick. Let's pray. Father, may you, by your grace and by your spirit, make us faithful. Show us more and more what we are to do. I pray this not just for the church corporately, but for us as individuals, the people who are the church. Help us to live, Lord, according to your kingdom, according to your mission, according to what you have called us to do. May you save people through this church. May you minister to needs through this church. May you spread your kingdom through this church. And for those who are not here, Father, I pray that they would understand your grace. They would understand their sin and their fallenness and their inability to stand before you on that day of judgment. But Father, may they understand your goodness and your grace, that you have lived the perfect life we could not. You died the death on our behalf. You've paid the price for our sin. You rose to conquer it. And may they be given by your spirit grace. May they be given faith to follow you and may you save them. I pray, God, you would bless the community around us through this church from Medford to Jackson County to Oregon to the United States to North America all the way to Africa, Father. May you use this church as faithful stewards to carry the torch of your gospel throughout the world. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. I love you guys. Have a great, great week.